0: Hi, I'm Stephen Apt, and here at Divine Savior Church, we believe that the message of Jesus truly changes lives. And so it's my prayer that as you listen to this message, that it does change your heart, uh, that it brings you peace and hope once again today. After you listen to it, if you wouldn't mind subscribing and liking, uh, we'd be grateful for that, so that more people can hear the message of Jesus. Thank you. This morning we begin a brand new series called Scandal, as, uh, and it's going to serve as our sermon series through the church season called Lent, as we walk our way to the cross in the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Scandal is something more than just something bad. Uh, a scandal is something that is done, some bad thing that is done by people whom you would least expect it to be done by and shouldn't do it. Uh, there are those that are leaders that are doing bad things, generally behind the scenes, and when it finally comes out, it is a scandal. Something bad that's done by people whom you would least expect it to be done by. And I'm sure as we sit here this morning, there are all kinds of scandals that you can think of over the course of history. And yet, what we're going to look at for the next six weeks is the scandal of the killing of Jesus of Nazareth. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked this earth and what happened was there was a plot to kill him. And the plot was from those who you would least expect it to be done by, the Jewish religious leaders. There was an inside job, so to speak, as one of Jesus' closest friends was in on it. There was actions that were taken that were done in secrecy, in the darkness of the night. There was a, a miscarriage of justice by the Roman government. It is the greatest scandal to ever take place as Jesus of Nazareth was killed as one of the worst of the worst criminals because that's what crucifixion was, res- uh, was reserved for, the worst of the worst. And what makes this scandal even more scandalous is that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just innocent He was perfect because he's God himself. And so today, we're starting scandal. The killing of God. And what we're going to see is we're looking at the plot to kill Jesus. We're going to look this morning at how uh, the, the Jewish leaders got together to answer this question. How do we get rid of Jesus. And it's important for us to know how they did it and how they got to that point because there's a little part in each and every one of us. There's a little part in all of our hearts that loves sin. And there's a, that part that loves sin is asking that question every day. How do I get rid of Jesus? And so let's look. Let's learn and let's be built up in our God and in his word because obviously we don't want to get rid of Jesus. We're in Luke, or John chapter 11 today. Uh, John, the end of John chapter 11. Uh, the the chapter is actually famous because Jesus did something that was so significant. Uh, it was a milestone in his ministry. His friend Lazarus died and was placed in a tomb for four days. Four days dead in a tomb when Jesus comes to town and he tells the people to roll the stone away and they do so and Jesus calls out in a loud voice Lazarus come out and the dead man does no longer dead but alive Jesus raises a man who had been dead for four days back to life you talk about significant and there was all kinds of people there to witness it The end of John chapter 11 records the people's reaction to this miracle. Here's what we're told. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Let's stop right there. People's reaction to Jesus raising Lazarus. Some, many, believed in him, Uh, which makes sense. Jesus is standing there. This man was dead for four days, and he, Jesus, had the power to raise him back to life. Why wouldn't you believe in him? He's standing right there, the one who has power over death. But then there were some who went and told the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect of the the Jewish religion uh, that were all about morality. Those people went to tell the Pharisees, and the Pharisees went to go tell the Sanhedrin, Uh, the ruling council made up of 70 men who oversaw the political and the religious affairs of the Jewish nation. The high priest served as the de facto president, so to speak, of the Sanhedrin, the leader of the Sanhedrin. However, they didn't have just full reign. The Roman government very much oversaw what the high priest was doing and the rulings they were making. This group came together, and everyone's up in arms. Why? Why? Because Jesus is doing many signs. And many people are starting to believe in him. And, and if more and more people start to believe that he is the Messiah, the Romans are going to come and take away our temple and our nation. Why would the Romans do that? Because there was a very bad misconception within the Jewish people, and the Jewish people let the Romans know that they were expecting a political messiah. Someone to come and overthrow the Romans and and bring them back as a nation. Which you would think that the Jewish people would say, great, Jesus is here, this is the one we want. Except it was very clear this wasn't who Jesus was. He wasn't going to overthrow the Romans. He had no interest in the political nature of things. And so the the Jewish people are saying, we can't have Jesus uh, doing all these things. Because if word gets out that people believe he's the Messiah, guess what the Romans are going to do? They're going to come and take away our temple. They're going to disperse us and we'll no longer be a nation. Do you see the problem with that? Jesus was a threat to their temple or their religious life and them as a nation. Do you want to know how to get rid of Jesus? Point number one let your idols be more important than Jesus. Let your idols be more important than Jesus. And that's what the temple and the nation of Israel was for the Jewish people. Where did the people find their identity? I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. Father Abraham was our father. That's who I am. I'm part of this nation. If I don't have that, who am I? Where did they find their security, their spiritual security, their religious practices? I'm okay with God because I come and do all these sacrifices. But if the temple's gone, I can't come and do sacrifices. How can I have religious security, spiritual security? It's gone. If I don't have the temple, if I don't have the nation of Israel, What is my meaning and purpose in life? Where is my ultimate hope? It's gone. And Jesus was a threat to both of them, the nation and the temple. And so they said, we've got to get rid of him. You want to know how to get rid of Jesus? Let your idols be more important than Jesus. Do you know what's challenging for you and me living in uh, 21st century America? We don't think we have idols. Unless it's an American idol. (laughs) And that's because we don't actually bow down to statues. We don't have little figurines. I'm guessing none of you have those on, on an altar at your home where you bow down and worship it. And yet an idol is more than just a little statue. Or a big one. An idol is anything you look to that only God can provide. It's something that you look to to find your ultimate hope, your ultimate security. It's something that you look to to find your ultimate identity. Who are you? This gives it to me. It's what you look to. That if it's gone, if it gets taken from you, you'll be thrown into despair and be hard to come out of it. It is something that you're willing to sacrifice everything to keep. And that describes the temple and the nation for the Jewish people. But what is it for you? What's in your heart that you are looking for the ultimate for? Is it your career? That this is your identity, You are this. And when it's gone, who are you? Is it your family, your spouse, your children? If I'm not a mother anymore, then who am I? And what's my purpose? Is it someone's love and respect? That that you need that person to recognize you, to, to love you, to notice you, and you'll do whatever it takes to have it. Is it your possessions and your money? What if Jesus told you, like the rich young man, to go and sell everything and follow him? Could you do it? Where are you finding your ultimate security, your ultimate hope, your ultimate meaning and purpose in life, and there you will find your idol. But do you see the danger in that? Even if you're uh, here today and you're not a Christian, there's a danger for you to place God like expectations on someone or something. There's actually two. Uh, two dangers. Number one, if you place God like expectations on something that isn't God, you are going to crush it with the weight of expectation. Because that thing or that person can never live up to the expectations of God because it's not God. Number two, it will end in disappointment. Because if you have God-like expectations on a thing that's not God, it's not going to fulfill your expectations. And it's going to lead you to disappointment. And then there's a, a third one. Sorry, not two, but three. Three you'll be filled with anxiety trying to keep it. You'll be filled with anxiety trying to keep it. Afraid of losing it all the time. But then there's one specifically for Christians. If we have idols, the danger is that Jesus is eventually going to threaten that idol just like he did the Jewish people. He's going to threaten it because Jesus only wants to be number one. And he will threaten your idol. And if we aren't aware that this is how you start to get rid of Jesus, is by letting your idols be more important to him, the heart will start to plot and to plan when when its idols are threatened. And when the idols are threatened, the question you're going to have to ask is, will I let Jesus be Lord? Will I let him be number one? Will I let him loosen my grips on my idols? Or will I start to plot to get rid of Jesus? How to get rid of Jesus? Let your idols be more important than Jesus. This was the case for the Jewish people. But there's one more step. Here's what we're told. Then one of them named Caiaphas who was a high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Do you want to know the second step in getting rid of Jesus? Point number two, twist God's word to justify keeping your idols. God gave Caiaphas a prophecy and told him exactly what was going to happen. Jesus is going to die on behalf of the nation. And how did Caiaphas take it? He twisted God's prophecy and said, this means political. This means politically. Politically. We have to kill Jesus so that we remain a nation, so that we remain having our temple, our idols. And he twisted God's word to justify keeping their idols. How to get rid of Jesus? Let your idols be more important than Jesus. And then number two, twist God's word to justify keeping them. And if you don't think that's a temptation for you and me, It's all so subtly in our hearts. We justify skipping church on Sunday to work. Why? Well, God, you tell me that I have to provide for my family. And so, I'm going to work on Sunday morning to provide for my family. God, you tell me that it's good to be respected by outsiders, and so I'm going to do whatever it takes To be respected by that person. Even if it means that I do things I never thought I would do. God, you tell me to go and reach the lost with the message of Jesus. And so I'm going to go and be relatable to those people. I'm going to live like them to gain their trust. Even if it means I have to sin a little. God, God, you tell me that I need to work. And in order to keep my job, and so that the people below me don't take my job, well, I might have to say some not-so-nice things about that person, but you want me to keep my job to provide for my family. It's so easy to twist God's word to justify keeping our idols. And that's what Caiaphas did. What's really interesting to think about is do you think that group of 70 men, when they were, say, 20, 25 years old, do you think they sat and thought, when I get older, I'm going to plot to kill a man? Absolutely not. But when an idol gets threatened, and when we, are, when we allow ourselves to twist God's word, we are capable of doing things that we never thought we, were, we would ever do. And that's what happens here, with the Sanhedrin. They let their idols be way more important than Jesus, and they twisted God's word to justify it. You talk about a scandal. Imagine if this would have gotten out to the people that the Jewish religious leaders, those who who were there to protect life were planning to kill life. Those who were there to be moral were acting immoral. This was scandalous. And yet it's not the greatest scandal in this text. Do you know what it is? God planned it. Who gave the prophecy? God. Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. That came from God. You want to talk about scandalous? God planned for Jesus to be killed. Your third point. Caiaphas plotted to save his nation politically. God planned to save all nations eternally. We see that here as God gives the prophecy to Caiaphas earlier that year. Before any of this took place, God said, here's what would happen. Jesus would die on behalf of the nation, and not only the nation, but for all of God's scattered children so that they may be one. And yet it was planned before that. 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, and what did he say in chapter 53? Talking about the suffering servant, a a servant that would come and suffer in our place, he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we have been healed. God said 700 years before this even happened that there was someone coming who would be pierced and crushed on our behalf to bring us peace. And yet it was planned much farther before then. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. The, The devil came as a serpent. He tempted Adam and Eve to eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden which God told them not to eat from. And they took it and ate. And in Genesis 3.15, what did God tell Satan? I'll put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. That person, that offspring was Jesus. And yes, he would come and crush Satan's head, destroy him, but he wouldn't do so And not get injured. Not be hurt. Because his heel would be struck. Would be crushed. This was planned from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. And yet, we're still not back far enough. What did we hear in Ephesians chapter 1 earlier today? That before the creation of the world, God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before God said, let there be light, he knew you and he chose you to be holy and blameless through Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That before God said, let there be light, he knew that humanity would fall into sin. He knew that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, would need to come into the world to suffer and die on behalf of the people. He knew it. He planned it. He planned the salvation history. And God still said, let there be light. God still said, come. Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Knowing full well that Adam and Eve would fall into sin. Knowing full well that he would need to send his son to suffer and die. And he still did it. Why? To have a relationship with you. So that you could experience his glory. Like Jesus says in John chapter 17, the glory that he experienced with the Father before the creation of the world, he has brought to you And to me eternally. What kind of love must God have for you? That He knew before the creation of the world the plan of salvation, and yet He still said, I'm going to do this. I know I'm going to have to die on behalf of my people to have them eternally, but I want to be with them, and I want them to be with me. So let there be light. It makes you stop and think and and pray with the psalmist. What is man that you are mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you care for him? And in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. There is no idol. There is nothing in this world that can love you like our God does. That he knows before the creation of the world what's going to happen and he still creates it to be with you forever. You talk about humility. You talk about an overwhelming sense of gratitude and joy. Marvel at the plan of our God. Marvel that he would do all this just to be with you forever. And that's the key to not getting rid of Jesus, but to holding on to Jesus. how do you do the opposite of getting rid of Jesus? You stop and you marvel at the plan of our God. That before the creation of the world, he knew us, chose us, still created us, to to marvel at his plan and his love for you and me. Do you know what it does to our hearts? It loosens the grip on our idols. Because suddenly they're no longer important. Because that thing can't love me like God does. That thing can't save me like God can that thing can't give me an eternal identity, purpose, and worth like God can. And so let's marvel at the, his plans this Lenten season. Let's sit and marvel at the love that he has for us, that all of this was planned before the creation of the world, just to spend eternity with us. And as we do, our idols will be loosened, and Jesus' grip on our heart will be stronger than ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, as we look at John chapter 11 today, uh, we can see ourselves there because there's a part of us that uh, loves sin and therefore loves idols. Uh, And yet, we don't want to love idols. We don't want to hang on to idols because they can't save us. They can't love us. Uh, They just demand from us. Uh, Instead, we want Jesus to threaten those idols. As scary as that sounds, we want him to threaten it so that he can be number one in our hearts because it's only through Him that we have eternal salvation. It's only through Him that we have the identity of being part of your eternal body, your eternal family. It's only through Him that we have eternal meaning and purpose. Uh, what joy that brings us. As we sit and marvel at your plans, that you had all of this plan from uh, before the creation of the world, uh, it fills us w- with an overwhelming amount of humility and awe uh, that you would love us this much, that you would want us to experience your glory this much, Uh, that you still created us, knowing everything that would happen, uh, knowing that Jesus would come, He would have to suffer and die, and yet you still did it, to have an eternal relationship with us. Move us, as we go forward, uh, to uh, let the grip on our idols go, and instead cling to our Savior, knowing full well that our Savior will cling to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message today. It's my prayer that uh, it has changed your heart as you grew in the message of your Savior, Jesus. Again, if you wouldn't mind liking and subscribing, we'd be grateful for that. God bless your day.